Hi everyone, welcome to Beyond the Benchmark, the EFG podcast. My name is Mo Zafsal, I'm the Global Chief Investment Officer for EFG. And so by popular demand and popular request, we have uh, Dennis Dupachere from 22V Research. Dennis, great to have you on again. Great to be back, thank you so much. So um, the last time uh, we spoke um, in Q4 actually, um, you know, we were starting to line up what was going to happen in 2023. And I think um, the view at the time, and we were just discussing it just off air just a few seconds ago, was this concept of a, of a white collar recession, not a recession in itself, because I think we certainly felt, and I think both you and I probably agreed on this, is that the economy kind of looked okay. There was no real indicators that things were going to roll off. I think the peak fear of recession was actually this time last year, I'll say, rather than yep. uh, later in the year or even this year. Um, and um, I mean, by and large, that's, you know, that um, white collar recession was, you know, so lots of job losses in the white collar areas, but uh, they seem to have landed on their feet. They do. I mean, you can see that in the data. Um, so a couple of interesting things that relates to the, the white collar recession. Um, uh, challenger layoff announcements, which you know we all follow, uh, they're fairly elevated, uh, elevated just basically for six months, and they've already started to come back down. So you've had two things happen. One, um, you never really saw a sharp increase in the unemployment rate. Um, we know that continuing claims have been very strong, actually been trending lower for the last four to five, uh, I should say, two months-ish on continuing claims. The reason that's important is because that, that suggests that people have an easy time being reabsorbed in the labor force. They're not constantly trying to re-up claims. So you're, you're not filing for continuing unemployment claims insurance. And so you've had this, you had that increase in layoff announcements. That's already come down. Challenger job cuts uh, or layoff announcements have already rolled over. Continuing claims are lower. Um, there has been some increase in unemployment claims. A lot of that, I think, is a little bit of um, a seasonal adjustment that took place. No real change there, looking at it from a cycle point of view. Um, and so the net net is that is mostly played out, right? And, um, you know, at the same time, those companies seem to be performing just fine. <laughs> so uh, clearly, and I, I'm not an expert on AI, and I'm not an expert on chat GPT. And I think it's very too early to say that those companies are already seeing these grand benefits. I'm sure they're seeing some, uh, but certainly there was productivity enhancements to be gained, um, you know, um, that they're clearly benefiting from right now. So in terms of um, um, you know, thinking about the markets the next stage, obviously probably big surprise for most people. Uh, you got a sense at the beginning of the year and actually through the course of the year that investors in general – were fairly underweighted in equities. They were underweighted in tech, uh, and particularly the big cap tech names. And you feel that a lot of the moves more recently has has been basically neutralizing the risk. You know that that these stocks move up another sort of twenty or thirty or forty percent, and you know you start thinking about your your own job and your own security. Um, sure. It, how much of a sense have you got over the course of the particularly the last couple of months? When, you know, certainly to the end of May, I think there's probably more panic about the big five you know, tech companies. Uh, and then June was a bit of a leveling out. How much in your kind of view with the people you talk to is a bit of sort of um, um, 
concerned that they're too far behind? Well, there's been a tr tremendous amount of concern that they're too far behind. I mean, that's the it's and as you noted, I mean, it's very difficult for a portfolio manager to keep up with uh, an index uh, that's being driven by a select group of stocks, in this case, the big seven. Um, that is a alleviated somewhat over the last month or so because they've stopped at least outperforming but to the same extent uh but yeah i mean it was um extremely consistent across the board concern about that move i think what i could add to that that might be of interest is and this part of the reason why i think positioning is still off a little bit in the market a lot of investors tried to extrapolate that big seven move as a precursor to a slow down in the economy and kept on elevating the recession risk. So they were saying, fine, we haven't gotten in a recession to start the year, but the reason those uh, seven stocks are working is because they're the most defensive large cap names, very high cash flow generators, all the stuff we know. And uh, suggesting then that, you know, as a result, a uh, recession was imminent. And that was kind of, or still very high probability, I shouldn't say imminent, but still very high probability. Um, the fact that those names really accelerated post SVB and the broader banking crisis obviously had an impact on people's psychology because you saw those names really start to accelerate uh, when the Fed funds futures curve started to price in some cuts into the future, uh, recession probabilities increased. Um, but uh, fast forward, we never saw the odds of a recession go up in the hard data. And so I always thought it was a little bit unfair to say that these names are going up a significant amount, driving the indexes a total of 16% in the first half of the year, 33% off the low from October with higher recession probabilities. That just didn't pass any type of smell test and certainly wasn't passing the on the ground data points, which are really important. So um, from here, it gets a little bit, a lot more interesting, but I think, um, yeah, I answer your question. Um, people are very concerned about uh, keeping up. Mm. Um, the other thing that's interesting is that the more traditional sort of safety sort of sectors, you know, you think about utilities, thinking about, um, uh, you know, it's consumer staples, uh, particularly the sort of, you know, tobacco and all those sort of things that people typically have, they haven't really kept up and they've underperformed and on the relative don't look good either. So, it's kind of an interesting sort of development bifurcation is kind of developing is that indeed, if it was the safety trade, you would have expected at least some of those companies yeah. and sectors to do much better. Yeah. I mean, interestingly, um, on a cap weighted basis, if you look at the cyclical sectors, which tech would be included in, yeah. and, and obviously tech was the largest driver of recurrence on a cap weighted basis, your every sector X, the defensive, so we'll define the defenses uh, for people um, the way typically defined and the way we would do it is utility, staples, um, pharma, and REITs. On a cap-weighted basis, the cyclicals outperformed the defensives by 29% mm. through the first six months. Mm. I mean, that's this massive outperformance. Now, obviously, a lot of that's concentrated. On an equally weighted basis, uh, it's a 9%. Right. So not the eye-watering 29 that I just said but it's still underneath the surface. It was a more cyclical market than a defensive market, clearly. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, not as dramatic as the cap weighted numbers would suggest, but on an equally weighted basis, you definitely saw outperformance of more cyclical sectors, which again, to your point, is not consistent with near-term recession probabilities being very high. So let's let's um, then think about the kind of the next stage uh, of the market development. So, um, so if it is not recession, and I think we, we all agree, obviously the inverted yield curve, fear of recession is still there for end of this year, early next year. Um, how do you how do you expect this uh, cycle to, to to play out? Obviously, a huge amount of uncertainty to that uh, because this is a yeah. very unusual cycle. Um, you know, I, I've been sort of on the tape sort of describing this as, you know, if you're using manufacturing PMIs, we're in a recession already. If you're using services PMIs, <laughs> when there's no recession happening. And then if you take it globally, um, you're then having China, which is the factory of the world, suffering. Yep. A normal slowdown because it's manufacturing led countries like Germany and others that are kind of manufacturing economies have fared worse than the services based uh, economies such as the US, the UK and, and so on and so forth. Um, how, do you think it in the same way? Yes, I think you've touched on a lot of interesting threads there that I'd like to, to think about what's next. And I would like to start by saying rules of thumb have been particularly poor um, um, heuristics this cycle. Uh, The ISM is a good example, and I hope I'm going to do a good job of describing this, but I would say if the ISM were to decline aggressively when the economy has been more or less in equilibrium for 10, 10 years, that's a really bad signal. Now, coming out of COVID, we had a situation where there was a massive fiscal stimulus. Um, um, uh, People were more or less not able to use the service economy, so they purchased significant amount of goods. At the same time, China started to shut down its factories. You had a supply constraint. And as a result, companies ordered a tremendous amount of things just as, right? just as the economy opened up in the US and we started to shift to service spending. So I almost think there's like a Y2K-ish thing for people that remember that. Mose, I know yeah, you do, do, but yeah. there was a, yeah. a burst of, yeah, yeah. spending on uh, equipment going into Y2K. This is a little bit different, but the same idea. There was a, a boom very dedicated to the, to the good sector, a supply constraint associated with it. Um, because there was no visibility, there was a lot of overordering, I believe, and this is, I shouldn't say I believe, there was a lot of overordering um, to meet, I guess it was end of 2022, potentially end of a 2022 demand that never really showed up uh, because there was a more of a shift to services. So I'm describing a unique situation coming out of COVID where there was a lot of pent up demand for goods and services, but they never were spent at the same time. It was all goods and it shift to all services. So we had desynchronized spending. What that does, it, it means old rules of thumb are less useful. So we've talked about like the, focusing on the ISM as a recession indicator, generally not a bad idea. This time around, it happened to be a pretty bad idea. And so to your point, I think you're seeing these rolling recessions as we move through the inventory adjustment related to that, you know, increase in inventories, just as spending shifted away from goods to services, that's rolling through China, it's rolling through Germany, it's, you know, rolling through parts of the US economy right now. 
but the service sector is still very firm, all right? So what we like to do is just look, step back and look at like your net aggregates. And right now, real personal consumption expenditures are running about two and a half percent. They're down from the boom levels of 6%. So they're, they're clearly weaker, but you're running roughly in line with the labor, the real labor income proxy, which is hours worked um, plus wages, basically adjusted for inflation. Um, so the real labor income proxy is around 2% or a little bit stronger than, excuse me, about 3%. That should be roughly consistent with two and a half percent personal consumption expenditures. Assuming the savings rate doesn't change much from here, like there's no reason for savings to go up or down, that, that would obviously change in a recession. But assuming that doesn't change, then we should expect personal consumption expenditure growth to be roughly two and a half percent, a little bit higher than the pre COVID cycle, not a boom. And um, that's a non recessionary economy that, that hopefully, I shouldn't say hopefully which I think will start to resynchronize. You'll see some normalization in good spending over the next eight to 12 months. The ISMs are already bottoming if you look at new orders uh, to inventories. It's not gonna be a boom. So you'll start to see the manufacturing side of the economy, uh, things that got really hurt from a stock point of view from destocking, stabilize. Uh, services will probably slow some and we'll be left with two and a half percent personal consumption expenditure growth a little bit of fiscal impulse, which we know about, and um, probably some, um, oh, and a positive impulse, at least from a rate of change coming from the housing area of uh, the economy. So we're in an expansion still. And that's the the net result, unless the Fed has to change the game and tighten more, which we can, we can get back into. But getting back to your main point, it's really important that people understand this desynchronization effect and don't extrapolate a trend in one sector to the entire economy because there was a lot of unique spending patterns that we'd never seen historically this time around. No, it's an exceptionally unusual development. It's, you know, oh, even we haven't seen this in our careers, right? If you think about it, that we've never had such a desynchronized um, no. uh, economy. No, we've never seen it. I mean, I just, um, well, it's uh, it's unique. There is no situation that I know of where people were essentially either forced to or not allowed to to access the service side of the economy. Yeah, yeah. but we're willing to spend. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, and they it, did so. And they did so. So, so let's. Um, I mean, again, these these are unique circumstances. I don't think sometimes we don't give it enough credit. You know, uh, I think people have just. <clears throat> you know, fall into their traps of, you know, looking at their sort of normal economic models or their normal, uh, you know, rate models and so on and so forth. Uh, and they've, you know, they've uh, kind of missed the fact this is such a unique set of um, circumstances. I actually do agree with you on the resynchronization as we go through the course of the the next sort of six to 12 months. Um, and I guess the way I've been thinking about it is just the services side of the economy is starting to roll over the manufacturing side is starting to pick up with, you know, destockings, you know, happened. And then you kind of end back in the middle somewhere that looks relatively harmless from an economic perspective. Yes. I, I mean, I, I think that should be your, all of our modal cases. Um, and I guess there's some risk if I were to point to one and I, I don't necessarily believe it, but I would say there's some risk that there were so many goods ordered in that period that maybe it takes a little longer, kind of a Y2K analogy to see a, a renormalization in the goods sector. But if you still have 
you know, your real income proxy positive and people willing to spend, all that means is that you spend more on services. It doesn't mean that the, the economy, you know, just kind of, uh, you know, falls apart. Um, I have some sympathy for that view, but I, I'm with you that you just kind of normalize back to a more normal spending pattern, um, which would, you know, consistent with two and a half percent total personal consumption expenditures. Mm. Yeah, that seems to something seems to make a lot of sense. Uh, at this point in time. So then let's think about interest rates and obviously there's such a unique cycle. Um, do you feel that the Fed is, you know, I guess bullied <laughs> by the, you know, the employment data and everything else to act I feel like they have to, even though they probably don't need to let just things start to, to normalize themselves. Um, because I guess ultimately for the market, that's the bigger risk, right? You've got this market is don't do anything. We're kind of happy where we are. The Fed feels like they need to do something and then they kind of make a mistake to to upset that sort of, for now at least, that the happy equilibrium. Yeah, I mean, I think that's clearly the, the big risk is that they're um, on the employment side of the, the data in particular that the Fed ends up feeling a little bit bullied. I mean, we're thinking about, I think we're, we're differentiated now, by the way, is about, because it's an important question, thanks for asking, where I think we're differentiated is on this particular view. There's clearly been significant disinflation and disinflation in the pipeline. Um, so core PC is coming down. We know this because the rent data that is um, uh, from the private sector is significantly below the lagging rent data that's in the in the CPI that we'll get tomorrow. Um, so that is going down. We know used auto prices have come back down. Um, so core PCE is going to be headed down continually through the next three to four months. Um, that's the easy disinflation that's already been happening for a long period of time. Supply chains have normalized, goods have normalized uh, from a from a uh, inflationary point of view. Rents are coming down. The issue is it does nominal wage. When I say the issue, the potential issue is nominal wage growth, uh, not normalizing lower. Um, I think the rule of thumb that most people use, which we would agree with, if you assume one to one and a half productivity growth, uh, you need to see average hourly earnings at like three and a half percent to be comfortable that, you know, you can get to below 3% on core, core inflation over time. You know, we're running at four and a half right now. And if the economy stabilizes and actually up increases a touch, which is possible if goods normalize, uh, housing data continues to be okay. It's proven that the rates aren't that restrictive at these levels, which is a whole nother conversation. Then you could see the Fed react more on a go forward basis. So our kind of two stage disinflation problem is, it seems very obvious to us, you're getting below four, maybe the three and a half percent on core PCE, getting below 3% could be a lot harder. And if the Fed, gets too aggressive too early, they don't give it time to see this play out, then that would be a major risk to the market. So in our view, you have this happy equilibrium, kind of, I shouldn't say, yeah, I guess happy equilibrium is fine, but you have this equilibrium for now. There shouldn't be a real change in financial conditions as a result, because we're not going to see a shock change in the Fed's outlook for interest rates. That's fine for multiples. Um, but if they were to pull forward their worries on wages, which I don't think they're going to do, by the way, but that is clearly a risk, um, then that would uh, that would be an issue. 
And that's our, but we think all the recession risk lies, by the way, at the Fed overdoing it versus the past tightening of financial conditions. It's a really important point, right? Just assume, by the way, for everybody listening, financial conditions are a reflection of what the Fed is expected to do, right? So financial conditions take into account the expected Fed fund rate, the Fed's intent to slow growth or not. So right now, financial conditions have stabilized. Financial conditions are the main way in which uh, um, the Fed impacts uh, the economy. And so if there's not going to be a change in financial conditions, the economy shouldn't deteriorate so much from here. Of course, there could be a shock, but right. So the, the risk is then if wages don't come down, that the Fed have to tighten financial conditions more. And obviously, we're closer to a recession now than we were a year ago, just by virtue of growth coming down. Yeah. yeah. And so that would be a pretty big risk, but the risk is the Fed doing it, not us, us meaning the economy, naturally going into a recession given current financial conditions. No, I think that's a really good summary. Um, so let's assume the cycle kind of continues. I've sort of had the sort of thought going back to the mid-90s view that, you know, maybe if I ran this and the economy slowed down, the Fed reacted at some point next year, that we could see from here maybe a net 150-odd basis points of rate cuts as a trough or close to the trough of the net cycle. So I know the Fed yeah. has a lower number, but Fed funds at, say, I know, end of 2024, beginning of 25, and obviously these are long-range things and they can completely wrong, but you know, I've got to, I've got to put my, plant my sort of, you know, flag somewhere as a, as a number, uh, to that, to that sort of trough rate environment. Um, and, you know, for me, I think somewhere around 350, 375, 350 probably is a number that I can live with on the basis that the Fed feels like the economy is going fine. They don't need it. You know, maybe there's worries about slowdown at some point in the next six months, but they'll probably only ever do sort of, you know, again, here I'm just assuming no shocks, of course, but if it's 150, 175 basis points of cuts, 350, 375 as a, as a number at the end of 24, beginning of 25, doesn't seem unreasonable to me. Uh, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, this is something where I'd be in violent agreement with you. Um, and I think it's the untold story of why the market is holding up as well as it is. Um, and the economy, obviously, as a result, and why recession calls have been so wrong, um, at least in the near term. If you thought that the neutral Fed fund rate was not 350, but closer to 2% or below, right? So zero real, if you're using the Fed's framework, then, uh, or anything post-GFC-like, right? Because we were at the zero lower bound, as you know, for a very long period of time. So if you thought that was their kind of mobile case for the economy, from a trend inflation point of view and a trend growth point of view, then 5% is wildly restrictive, right? 5% yeah. is something that should be crushing the economy, Yeah. right? So um, maybe this happens, but obviously I already went through financial conditions. We see the housing data, which is the most interest rate sensitive already turning. Remember housing is tip of the spear when it comes to interest rate uh, policy. Uh, the peak drag from housing as a uh, residential investment from uh, as a percent of GDP was three and four Q of last year. It's already turning back up, mm -hmm. right? So something is going on here. Uh, 
most I think is totally underappreciated, which gets to there must be a higher equilibrium Fed funds rate. There must be a higher neutral rate. And I think so. And the violent agreement point is, yeah, it's definitely higher than the last cycle. I would agree with you that 350 to 375 sounds uh, reasonable to me, and it could even be higher. And the reasons it could be very higher are, let's go through them. One, you still have a consistent fiscal impulse, right? In the post-GFC cycle, we had a short-term fiscal impulse that was followed by a contraction, particularly at the state and local level. You have housing as a much greater positive contributor to GDP and net worth effects that are stronger. We delevered the U.S. economy for the six, seven years following the global financial crisis. We have a private sector surplus now, right? As a result, savings rates are lower. So your household savings rate is lower now than it was in the post-GFC period. Um, it's more like the pre-GFC period. If you just look at the savings rate, which in the pre-GFC period, guess what? We had a you know three fifty to five percent Fed funds, <laughs> yeah, so yeah. you know and and the economy was just fine and equity risk premiums were lower, um, and then related as to why because you already have the fiscal impulse I talked about so the higher jet, debt to GDP the ratio by definition is going to dictate a higher neutral interest rate. In addition to that, um, we have a wealth effect that is completely underappreciated in my view. So from January 2020 to today, the economy is plus 35 trillion. And that's despite the equity markets being still well off their highs. Now, home equity has continued to grow. So you have full employment, um, arguably long-term labor shortage issues. We could come back to that, but I guess you do uh, to some extent. Um, you have investment in the U.S. economy that hasn't really happened for 10 plus years, which is why the housing market is able to sustain, um, you know, uh, the, the increase in interest rates. Um, and all of that suggests, uh, and they, I didn't even mention this, which is related, the Inflation Reduction Act, which encourages investment in the U.S. It's a very powerful program. All of that suggests to me that even if you believe neutral interest rates are lower because of productivity and demographic headwinds and they're closer to zero, that you could at least have a three to five year counter cyclical higher interest rate. So I'm in violent agreement with you on that. And I think it is possible, although I wouldn't say it's our base case, that it could be even higher than 375 for a period of time. Mm. And that is basically probably why the economy, I think the investors are starting to pick up on this, and helps explain why the market is doing as well as it has relative to expectations and why the economy is holding up as well as it was it had. If you had a post-GFC framework for the world, then yes, we should have been in a recession six months ago, and it should have been a pretty harsh one given where interest rates are, and it just hasn't happened. So we have to think about why that is the case. And I agree, it just means we must have much more structural underlying demand yeah. for reasons stated. Yeah. No, that's uh, that's uh, very very interesting. I think it's uh, certainly have you in terms of just thinking about. Um, and I know you don't necessarily cover the rest of the world. Um, how do you think that respect to the rest of the world? So obviously it's a great U.S. phenomena, right? And I think if you just look at the inflation numbers, the U.S. A was a you know U.S. Um, um, I mean we could exclude some emerging markets that were probably peaking inflation a little bit earlier than the US was, but it kind of peaked and and has been coming down pretty much on a nice trend. 
and actually ahead of most other countries. Um, Europe, UK, of course, um, and maybe Japan coming up. Um, but US looks pretty good on the inflation front and, and inflation coming down relative to the rest of the world. Um, and obviously that's not brilliant for the dollar. And, and that's why you've seen the dollar in general a little bit more weaker. And I guess feeding back through, that's still going to help cyclicals and industrials in particular if the dollar is a little bit weaker. Yep. Yeah, I think for the rest of the world, um, it's net net a positive because if investment is picking up in the US, yeah. that's generally going to be a positive for the rest of the world. Yeah. And I and you know, I think those old rules of thumb haven't changed. Um I think there seems to be an investment impulse in Europe, which you would be closer to me over time. Yeah. Right. It might not be as dramatic as the Inflation Reduction Act in the US, but there's probably a a, a structural invest positive investment um story in Europe. Europe is clearly cheaper, I'm thinking European relative to the US. So if you're having a cyclical upturn in the global economy, uh, US probably leading it now, the rest of the world will catch up in, when I say upturn, that's a little too strong. If you have a sustained kind of higher nominal demand backdrop in the US for the, over the next cycle, um, then the rest of the world is going to catch up, right, to that. Um, then I would say it's it's broadly positive for the rest of the world equities, um, and how and and I think the differentiating factor then when thinking about a very specific index terms is how high do ten-year yields need to go in the U.S. Um, to keep inflation in check, right? So let's just say we have a three fifty short rate, call it a three fifty to four two-year yield, and we go back to a positive yield curve. Are we looking at five percent ten-year yields? I don't think that's a necessarily a bad thing, but it might not be great for certain stocks in the U.S. index yeah. over a longer period of time, which would help benefit more cyclically oriented companies. And obviously, the rest of the world is more cyclical. So it's a, still a pretty good backdrop for the rest of the world equities. Uh, I think it's more country specific than them broadly saying ex-U.S. versus U.S. Sure. So sort of just to kind of summarize the point that you made there is that if the yield curve were to normalize three and a half short rate for two year five or four and a half or 475 on the 10 year, then actually in that sort of environment, the rest of the world actually could do better as that, as that plays yes. out, which, which completely makes yes. sense. Yeah. Which completely makes sense. Um, so in terms of your overall sector allocations at the moment, where are you where are you positioned and the logic uh, with respect to that? Yeah, so this is a bit of a change for us. So we started the year, um, probably last time we talked, it was very early cyclical oriented. So tech communications, uh, discretionary. Uh, the shift now is back towards uh, the deeper cyclicals. Um, X energy, but you're gonna be industrial materials will be the, the two main ones. And then um, kind of a sub sector way to think about it. Um, because you have to se separate discretionary into very specific buckets. Uh, but retailers, transports, companies that have been unfairly, in our opinion, hit, oh, I shouldn't say unfairly, companies that were hit from the destocking thesis, mm -hmm. right? With, or for the inventories uh, and um, goods adjustment that we already talked about, to the extent that that's probably going to normalize over the six to 12, next six to 12 months, 
we're very fo- we're very focused on those type of companies. So XRT, which would be your, your retailers, your transports, your truckers, those those are areas that we're long right now. So deeper cyclicals, so that's your industrial materials, probably uh, most interesting to us, particularly industrials. We're still, you know, not uh, discretionary. We would still like. Uh, tech, we are less uh, enthusiastic about right now. Small caps, we are long. So we are long the average stock relative to the overall index. So think about it, S&P 400 over S&P 100, if you want to do it like that. Russell versus NASDAQ, the valuation spread there is in the 95th percentile historically between Russell and NASDAQ. Um and so if we're having the type of backdrop that we're, if we're headed to the type of backdrop that we describe, which is higher nominal interest rates, stronger economic growth, hopefully we obviously we avoid a recession, that is going to favor the average stock. So that shift happened for us uh, in June. So we made that call at the, at the beginning of June. Um, it's been okay so far. Uh, but that's why we see the rest, of the, the rest of the year playing out. So that's a pretty big shift for us, which was overweight, you know, those early cyclicals, uh, stocks that benefit from lower inflation, and now shifting more towards the cycle. The question I get a lot at the moment is, you know, when are we going to get the 5 10% correction that we pretty much do every single year? Um, any, any, obviously, seasonality, you're going to August, September, October, you know, with the worst three months of the year, typically for for markets. Um, what's, your, what's your sort of sense? You know, what do you think the I'm, I'm not going to pin you down on when you think it'll happen, but more about what do you think the catalyst would be for that for that for that correction if indeed it was to happen. So we will get it, and I agree with you. Right? It's just a, it, and I think the catalyst will be. Uh, I think it's one of two things. Uh, there's the easy answer, which I don't. Uh, the Fed just does more, mm. and if the Fed's going to do more, it probably means that they do three hikes relative to two, maybe two does it. Um, so November. Right. Right. If if they go if they go June September and they threaten to go in November, you're somewhere in the fall. Your classic October kind of correction period is when you would get it. I think the other option is there's the Fed has to accomplish its goal. If we think through it this way, of getting inflation more in line with you know below three percent, they probably have to keep growth below trend for a long period of time. So we still avoid a recession. The cyclical economy we talked about still comes to fruition, but it's you know it doesn't really show up in earnest maybe until 2024 if, if inflation is slow to come down or late 2024. So I, I do wonder that we go up another seven or eight percent through November, and then people look at 2024 earnings and they go, ah, right. I don't know, maybe we're only going to get seven percent, right. <laughs> right? And you kind of we draw off forward a lot of next year and. You know, by December, people just light up and take a lot of profits and you get like a really bad last month of the year or something like that. Yeah. So that's how I'm thinking about it. Yeah, which I think is, is, is there. I think the, the seasonality bit is the bit that we're, we're, you know, certainly we're grappling and we're trying to figure out, oh, is this going to be a more seasonal pattern? Um, does it happen earlier? I do sense that investors in general, um, um, got plenty of cash on the sidelines i think you know hedge funds in general are not i think as engaged uh as they have been in in previous periods so um you kind of get the sense that any pullback if it were to come you, you probably see quite a few people getting involved um 
to kind of catch up a bit. You make a good point. You're sorry, you make a good point. You know, the reason I'm struggling more than usual to answer the question is when we survey investors and we've been doing it all year, mm. 81% think a recession is going to happen. Yeah. It's been 80% above. And we ask, the, we ask every month, it's two to 300 investors on every survey. And, you know, you, you mentioned nets are low at hedge funds. Um, they've underperformed. They haven't really chased this year, um, at least not yet. So to get more comfortable on that, like, correction call i would love to and you know you know whether i would love it or not doesn't make a difference but you know you'd like to see a little, a little bit more exposure a little bit more chasing a little bit more everybody accepting that there's lower recession odds and then that's when you then i would be a little bit a lot more worried about the yeah, the correction yeah, yeah i think that's a reasonable way to look at it i think there's a very reasonable way to look at it um in terms of sort of some of the thematics that you're looking at um what are the sort of obviously AI is the big word that people are looking at. Are there any kind of more negative ones? You know, obviously you've got election coming up. Pharma typically doesn't do well going into, you know, into elections. Are there any other sort of things, uh, you, know, th you know, I guess thematically you're looking at for the next sort of 12 to 18 months other than AI, which obviously is, is a well understood and well trodden topic. Yeah. So I would say on, on thematically, um, I would say, from AI point of view, I would say that I think the winners from that very clearly are going to be the average company, not just the mega caps. Mm. I think it's obviously they're the, the to use the same analogy again, the tip of the spear, you know. But you know, we're seeing it here in our business. I sure I'm I'm sure other businesses are seeing it that the productivity gains from Chat GPT and um, uh, LLMs or language sorry, language learning models uh, can be pretty, pretty uh, dramatic. And so there is a profitability story for the average company that I think is on that is underappreciated. So that's a, you know, that kind of gets to the many versus the few. And, you know, those other companies starting to benefit. This is obviously not something that's going to happen overnight. But thematically, um, the next leg of AI gains, I don't think, are in the same stocks. Uh, you know, they're they're going to be fine. By the way, they're they're wonderful companies, and I've been in love with mega cap tech for a very long period of time. So, uh, I don't want to suggest that they're going to come under intense pressure. But the next leg of this is, I think, the average company benefiting from the productivity enhancements. It kind of goes where our conversation started. Like a lot of these tech companies have survived and it was not, it's not just these large ones, these smaller tech companies have survived um, despite significantly reduced workforces. Yeah. I think that's uh, so. Yeah. That's pretty good example. Yeah. And that's a very good, uh, sorry, carry on Dennis. No, no, that, that would say that's the main thematic that I'm, I'm thinking about right now, not much on the election. Right. Um, and yeah, I, the potential for disinflation from China, although I have to do more work there, that's a that's a fairly interesting, you know, uh, go forward. Because um, you end up with the best of the best of both worlds, where you have you know mm. persistent disinflation from China, but expansion in the U.S. and like like what does that mean for multiples and earnings? Mm. Um, that's you know an interesting 
It is. It, uh, it, 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 there's echoes of the of the mid mid nineties and the yes. sort of mid, you know mid late nineties in there, isn't it? Because because the time we had emerging market crises, we had you know rece- huge deflationary recessions in China, in, you know, in China and Asia, uh, Japan, and so on and so forth. <laughs> there are some echoes here, you know, uh, uh, which you know are worthwhile to kind of delve into when we're when we're thinking yeah. about uh, the the next stages of the market. Yeah, you make a good point because you, there are a lot of people focus on say China's you know struggling as an economy now, and people want to go to the tail risk associated with it. And I get it. And uh, is it going to you know drag oil prices significantly lower? And if you stop focusing on the tail risk for a second and just focus exactly what you say is you, when you have emerging market shocks, uh, um, you have a lower cost of goods import backdrop. Yeah. Bottom line, and supply chains have not been. Um, reoriented yet, and China still needs to export to maintain, you know, some semblance of economic growth. So you could end up with a doubling down. You could see them, you know, trying to ramp up exports into a slowdown. You could see them be more aggressive on pricing um, to try and eliminate competition as they go through the slowdown. There's a lot of ways in which you could see more goods deflation than anybody is talking about yeah. <laughs> um, from a PPI point of view, right? Yeah, and absolutely. then the ability, if the economy in the U.S. is okay, for U.S. companies then to pass, you know, to, to keep costs or keep the price at the same level or not as not as reduced. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's, that's a pretty underappreciated story. Uh, I mean, just take Japan, the fact that the dollar yen's kind of moved – you know, what, 140 now, yes. but it's still 40% weaker than it was, you know, uh, uh, three or four years ago. Um, and I think um, a lot of these um, elements I don't think have been necessarily fully appreciated. And, of course, supply chain constraints probably meant that maybe pricing was squeezed for a while, but when they say normalized, the dollar-yen is still at 140, right? And the RMB yeah. is, is, you know, is still a weaker currency. So, so I think... Um, um, there, there are certain elements, and I, yeah, I get the sense that people haven't really focused on that. And I think that's probably the next area that's going to be, uh, you know, critical. Um, on while I was on the road uh, last week in Asia, um, one of the charts I had on was uh, the China demographic sort of challenges, right? Yeah. You know, basically, by the end of the century, Chinese population depreciates by roughly about forty-six percent purely on demographic trends and um and you kind of look at it and just think can the real estate market ever recover from this you know you'd bet that it probably doesn't right um if your population yep. halves over the next sort of 50 years can you know can real estate prices across the whole country you know maybe you could argue that the big cities stay up because everyone moves and like they have done in Tokyo and so on and so forth uh, in, in Japan, whether, you know, what happens. And so I get the sense that they need another story to stimulate, right? So they, you know, just cutting rates to pump prime real estate in China and, and provide say more incentives doesn't necessarily fix a demographic problem that is out there for the next you know 30 or 40 or 50 years. Um, and so it's not necessarily quantity, maybe quality is the bit that needs to improve. Um, and so they need, they need another story. And, and I think this could easily be one, um, particularly if 
Um, they want to kind of sort of you know, rebuild relationships with the rest of the world that have frayed a little yep. over the last two or three years. Yep, would agree for sure. And it's interesting that I don't hear a lot of people talking about this like you are and we are to now. And I, I find a lot more, I find investors, if I could give a public service announcement here, um, it's always interesting to look at tail risk. It's always interesting and useful to focus on what could go really wrong. Uh, and I, I totally understand that. Um, but there are these other outcomes that are possible. Like China has a demographic problem. China has a property problem. But unless the economy really goes into a tailspin, which is probably unlikely, at least near term, you have more of a melting Japan ice cube, right? Situation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Then look for it to be disinflationary. Mm. Mm. I think so. I, I think that's certainly one of those things and certainly has impact for commodity prices and, and, uh, and so on and so forth. So certainly I think there's something to, to watch out for as we move forward and certainly until India, you know, maybe takes a baton over, over the next, uh, over the next sort of commodity cycle in 10 years or something, given that typically yeah. this is these, how these things, you know, uh, pan out. Um, so Dennis, it's been great. The last question I was to ask you was around the financials and, Obviously, um, the sort of regional financials have not really sort of recovered. I mean, they, you know, they've kind of bounced, they're flatlining. They're not really giving us, uh, you know, any alpha. You know, a lot of sort of prominent investors were piling in back in sort of April, May, saying that these things have fallen, but have not really rebounded and, and still showing um, relative underperformance, uh, at, you know, at this point. Um is this a sort of going back to risk? Is this a sort of a signal that the mid cap regional banks, you know, maybe commercial real estate led, you know, risk is there, which finally gets the Fed to 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 move and to pivot finally? You know, how much of that is a risk? Because when I look at those stocks, they haven't really recovered and and you know, just one of those sort of, I go back to sort of 2006, 2007, you know, banks over that whole period never really recovered and everyone was kind of hoping they would have. And then we had 2008. Yeah. Um, I don't think the signal coming from the banks uh, um, is going to meaningfully impact the economy to the extent that we have a recession. I think it's, it does, you know, uh, we've termed it a bank walk, not a bank run uh, deposit rates are going higher right. over time. That's really poor for their earnings relative to history. Um, lending standards, uh, lending should slow some, uh, which we all know. Um, but it seems to us that it's very specific profitability problem for banks going forward versus a larger or broader um, economic issue that's going to change the Fed's outlook meaningfully. Um, CRE, so commercial real estate, excuse me, is the is the big issue. My understanding of that, and we've done a little bit of work on that, is outside of the top four or five cities, um, there's not really a commercial real estate issue. Right. Um, you're, you're seeing an offset in suburbs, right? You're right. you know you're seeing the entire South boom. Uh, you know, Seattle has a major problem. Chicago has a major problem. Major problem. New York is getting better. Not all. New York. So you're going to have a lot of banks owning, you know, some properties that they didn't want to own. Um, 
And also don't forget that a lot of, uh, this was brought up to me by um, world-class financials investors. Um, a lot of the commercial real estate lending from um, um, uh, some of the mid-tier regional banks is actually uh, data center and warehouse related. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So the ones that, you know, it's usually the, the larger regional banks that lend to the cities in those uh, or to the buildings that obviously the commercial real estate in those, those, some of those larger cities, but you know, some of the, a lot of the other players are actually, you know, financing warehouses, which obviously is related to a whole restructuring of the economy and the internet age and et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. That certainly makes, uh, makes a lot of sense. Well, Dennis, that's been absolutely fascinating as always. Very, very interesting. Um, again, very interesting perspectives, maybe sort of very different to many of the other sort of, uh, you know, Wall Street houses, the U.S. houses that we that, that we have on the podcast, but also that we speak to on a regular basis. So uh, very unique, very different. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Dennis, again for your time. Uh, and of course, love to thank have you, you again uh, very soon. Oh, I would love it. Great. Great. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Dennis. Uh, so that wraps us up for today. Uh, again, thank you for listening into Beyond the Benchmark. And we'll be on again very soon. 